Genesis 4.26 And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCreary, and with me is Bryant Bales. We're here today to talk to you about Genesis chapter 4. As we want to do every time, we want to read through the whole chapter, we want to record some initial observations, and also get into the core themes of what's going on in this chapter, the big questions of this chapter, and then finally go into application of this. We invite you to open up your Bibles and study with us. Uh, if you're not able to open up your Bibles with us right now, maybe at least just take a listen and kind of see what you think about the things that we're saying, and uh, we certainly invite your uh, feedback. We're very thankful for you uh, listening to our podcast, and uh, we hope to continue to uh, move along with this podcast and to develop it as time goes on. If you'd like to contact us, we have an email address. It's walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. Walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. That's P-R-O-T-O-N mail.com. And uh, we invite you to Email us any kind of questions, and even with some questions, we want to try to answer those questions here on the podcast, if at all possible. So we're going to try to do that as, as, as much as possible. And so, we're again, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Bryant will be reading from Genesis 4 this week, and uh, he will be reading from what translation, Bryant? The New King James translation. All right, here we go. Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, 
that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city, and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mehujael, and Mehujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zelah. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and, the, and flute. And as for Zelah, she also bore Tabul Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tabul Cain was Naamah. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives love Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So some initial observations about this chapter, uh, you know, one of the things that really jump out at me is the fact that it really seems like the meanings of these names begin to really be important in the text. Uh, just some stuff that I looked up. Cain has the meaning of acquire. Abel means breath. And Seth means appointed. And I think those are really interesting things. Uh, what you begin to see is that names throughout the Bible do have meanings, and uh, people are given these names for a particular purpose. And uh, it's not really like what we have today, where people just sort of maybe choose names at random from time to time. Oh, that sounds good. Uh, there was a actual meaning behind the names that people were given at that time. And so it's kind of interesting. Um, you know... Uh, one of the other things I thought of, and I think this is one of the more obvious things that people, uh, skeptics' favorite questions will be, where did Cain get his wife from? <laughs> I think especially as uh, as a preacher, as uh, a teacher of the gospel, that's a question that uh, 
you'll get from people from time where where can get his wife from well the text doesn't tell us about that and uh you know, what do we have to assume? Well, we have to assume to some degree that time passed and mankind populated as Cain traveled. Uh, you know, that's the only thing that I can think of. Uh, people try to take this and make these other kind of doctrines that there were other pockets of humanity all, all around the world. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that that is impossible, but, uh, you know, really, it's one of these things where in the New Testament were referred to endless genealogies and, and uh, mindless questions, mindless speculation that just is a waste of time. But again, that's one of the things that always jump out at me in this chapter. Maybe it shouldn't, uh, but I just wanted to kind of get that out of the way so that we can kind of move on to more important things. Um, also, I want to cover that the Enoch mentioned in verse 17 uh, you know, you, you, can, you might read through and say, whoa, whoa, are we talking about the same Enoch that walked with God that we're going to see in chapter five? No, it's not the same Enoch. It's not the same family. It's not the same family tree. And, uh, you know, another one of the things that just is jumping out at me right now is just the, the you know, it really seems like this is the start of the world getting worse and worse and worse. And we're going to see the fruition of that in, uh, in chapter six of Genesis. And so, those are just some quick things that I ran through. Brent, what do you think? Yeah, something that um, really sticks out to me with this chapter, you know, it, if you just look at it up to this point, it really seems like the creation is, is just a complete disaster. Um, doesn't seem like it took very long for Adam and Eve to sin against God and, you know, the goodness of the things that God had set up and given is all ruined and they had to be driven out of the Garden of Eden. And here... You know, Cain murders his brother, and people from Cain are calling cities after their own name. So God's name is being ignored and forgotten, and they're looking to those who are coming from themselves rather than where they come from. And obviously at the end of the chapter with Lamech, he's boasting about his murder. Uh, so it's just like spiraling downhill so fast, you know. And if you were to stop here, you'd think that God just completely failed you know, in every way with all of this. There just doesn't seem to be any kind of glimmer of success uh, in anything that's happening at all. It's just everything is a failure. Um, you just kind of get a, a little tiny spark of hope with verse 26. Uh, and that's that's really all God needs, you know, to work with. It's kind of like that faith of a mustard seed. But I just think it's interesting just how much it looks like, you know, God really, you know, God makes it look like he failed. Um, and kind of speaking, speaking on that, you know, another thing about uh, it seeming like God failed, you know, part of that is, you know, looking back on this with the perspective we gain from God's whole counsel and knowing Jesus is God's willingness to lose Cain or rather his willingness to lose Abel so that he could convict and change Cain's heart, um, which it doesn't even seem like he did do that. It doesn't seem like, you know, Cain's attitude changed, but, you know, think about Jesus's passion in the garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, you know, how much emotion God experiences because of sin. And you have to think like, if you really love someone and there's something needful for them, you'll control your emotion to have a conversation with them. You know, think about if, if, you know, if you're in a marriage relationship and your wife or your husband, or maybe your children have done something that, has just infuriated you but you know if you talk to them in fury you're not going to be able to have 
a needful productive conversations. You have to compose yourself and control yourself. And God's mastery over his emotion in this chapter to me is extraordinary because we know how passionate God is about sin. And yet you don't see that at all. And, you know, I think what we see is God's willingness to hide himself, his willingness to be overlooked, his willingness to be forgotten. That amazes me too. So not only does God look like he's failing, but it's like he's, he's even purposely hiding himself behind the scenes of the things happening and letting himself fall into the background. I think that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, he has he has limitless love. He has limitless. I mean, I, I think there's a sense where we have a god of emotion, mm-hmm. but yet he he holds himself at bay. He he sets these boundaries for himself, right. and that's all for the the best outcome. Um, you know, uh, I mean, you have. Uh, I'm sure you're about to get to this too. Like when when it's the sense where he deals with Cain, you know, he, he basically reasons with him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't just shoot him right. down and then leave him alone. Yeah. Cause you have to think like if, if people see your full emotion when they're unable to understand that emotion, that's really intimidating and scary actually. Like if, if someone did something against you and it really pained you a lot, but they didn't understand that what they did was that bad. You know, like if they see that, that may make them not want to talk to you. So it's amazing that God is willing to talk to Cain, does talk to Cain and listens to Cain and even yields to Cain's complaint. Like that's just wow. You know, because to know that this is the same God, you know, we worship today. It's just amazing how far God will go to change the hearts of sinners. You know, like you don't see a God Mm -hmm. Even in the very beginning here, like sometimes people say, you know, when I look at the Old Testament, it's a God of wrath and anger and it's scary. Well, yeah, I mean, because God bears so long with sinners in the Old Testament that eventually he does need to reveal his passion. And it is scary. And people, when they look at that, they don't want to serve God because it intimidates them. And what you see in the very beginning is God does control his passion. He does understand it's intimidating and he does want to talk with us reasonably and you think like Jesus experienced his emotion and yet and now, you know, I talk to God in prayer and I don't see his passion visibly. And so it really comes down to my faith and appreciating God's emotion because he wants me to discover it in a way that I can handle. Um, and again, I just think all of that is, is very amazing. And, you know, it's motivating because it's like I want to serve that God, that that's a God I want to serve. So I, I just love that so quickly in the text. There's so many profound and deep qualities of God you can discover when you look at it from the perspective of first seeing Jesus and then coming back to it. You know, Cain's family, how does how does that go on? How does that develop over time? And, uh, you know, you and I were talking a little bit you know, before we started recording that, uh, you know, this is just something that seems to compound on mm-hmm. itself. And Cain's initial fault, whether he reformed or not, it doesn't really seem like he his heart was really very successful in changing. But uh, but at the same time, regardless of that, uh, things could have gotten better. But uh, but things didn't. You know, one thing I thought of, and this is this may be kind of an odd thing to think of too. 
uh, he has descendants that are referred to as the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock, the father of all those who play the harp and flute. It's just really odd for me to think of that there was there was this one person at one time that decided, hey, you know, I think we could make this this thing called a tent. And I think we could, we could you know, this is how we could do this. And, uh, and then another person said, well, you know, maybe if I take this stick and kind of bend it a little bit and put some strings in between it, yeah, that makes a noise. It makes a note, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting to me, mm-hmm. and I think you see this later on, too, that uh, so many of the artisan trades, uh, so many of, of things that, I guess I guess part of it has to do with like things within the material existence are associated with people that are essentially wicked. Hmm. I, I don't, you know, it's it's really interesting. interesting to me. Like I, I don't see any godly people in Genesis taking the time to invent something hmm. or to 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 make this new hmm. thing. Uh, I mean, I, I, that that's not to say that they don't use strategy and try to be clever with things. I think Joseph's idea, you know, later on in Genesis about, uh, about, uh, storing up during the famine in Egypt or during the, during the, 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 the good times in Egypt, the good seven years for the famine in Egypt. Um, I think that, that took some initiative that took some, some brains for him to think about that and to work that out. So I'm not saying that God's people are dumb or, or useless, but it's just an interest. It's just an observation that I had is that, you know, it really seems like the people that devote their lives and, and spend so much time uh, with these trades and making life better also happen to be people that seem to not really have much interest in, in mm-hmm. the Lord. Now, again, I, I'm not saying that people who are interested in making life better are inherently bad. It's just something that I see in the scriptures there. What, what do you think, Brian? No, I think that definitely is interesting that there's a focus on worldly things and excelling excellently in worldly activities with Cain's uh, lineage and then you get to Seth and it's like well they began to call the name of the Lord that's what they're all about you know pretty drastic difference exactly exactly so so and then also I think that's something to see here too that that we're going to begin to see the line of Seth be the dominant people of God I mean really what we have here are the seeds of Israel, right? I mean, just uh, th- this is where that strain really begins. And it's interesting because there's this sense where you might feel like, well, that should have begun with Abel. But, you know, God was, uh, God, it, it tells us again in, excuse me, in the grand scheme of things, how God is able to, just as Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees, you know, God is able to take these stones and make them sons of Abraham. You know, God can do whatever he wants to make whatever he wants. And so, uh, you know, just because Abel is murdered doesn't stop God's plan. God allows this to, to come to fruition. Seth is the beginning of that, uh, that, that uh, good line of people, you might say.
So as we talk about the themes, like the big questions, that's what we want to get into. We want to get into the nitty gritty of what's going on in this chapter, not just in the context of the chapter, but in terms of what's going on uh, in the whole of the Bible. You know, the whole Bible has a context. What What is the Bible? Well, the Bible is a collection of 66 books, and but there is a harmonious uh, stream throughout all those books that tie them together. And a lot of that are the things that we, we want to talk about, that we want to discuss. But just stepping through this chapter, we've got some background here. We see saw in the previous chapter that Adam and Eve were uh, sent out of the Garden of Eden. And God was going to provide protection from the Garden of Eden so that it would not be found by man. That man uh, would not be able to partake of the Tree of Life and live forever. And we see children begin to be born in verse one adam knew eve his wife and she conceived and bore cain so cain is this first son this firstborn son um a little bit of healthy speculation could children have been born while they were in the garden was god's plan initially just to have adam and eve um i, I think we have to see that based on chapter one that's not the case right because he told them from the start uh, in chapter one, for them to uh, to multiply, chapter one verse twenty eight, fill the earth and subdue it. Um, now, I guess you can make the argument that maybe he made that command, you know, even after the garden, but uh, but ultimately they were meant to procreate, and so I, I choose to look at this in a positive sense that it really seems like Adam and Eve they're cast out of the garden they must be feeling the repercussions of that and yet they maybe i'm stretching to say this but it really seems like they want to be faithful to god again uh, it really seems like the fact that they are procreating they are moving on they're not just stopping that they're moving forward it seems like they they at least want to try to do the right thing um what do you think about that bryant am i am i am i stretching with that statement yeah, and I mean, you look at Cain and Abel, you know, they both brought things that seem like they're for the purpose of worship. So that definitely seems like the desires there, at least. Yeah, and they got that from mm -hmm. somewhere, too, right? I mean, obviously, um, and this is something I've been thinking about recently, the idea of law in the face of the scriptures. You know, some people will say, well, there's no, there's no law until it's actually presented. Well, obviously, God gave Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel something because how else would they know to mm -hmm. do what they're doing? And the fact that it, it, it correlates with what is offered in the law of Moses later on. Um, you know, so th th there's different things that we could see. Let's talk about the sacrifice itself though. Um, Abel's was pleasing to God uh, in some way, but we, you know, the text, at least in my translation, says the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. It's an interesting way to yeah. phrase it. And I think, again, I think some people looking at the Bible with maybe an unmerciless attitude will kind of say, well, you know, what is it about Cain that you don't like, God? What's wrong with Cain? Um and even you could look into the law of Israel, the law of Moses, and recognize there were grain offerings. You know, you had offerings where people could offer of the fruit of the field and things like that. And so, you know, I think obviously our 
pass uh, the passage in uh, in Hebrews shed some light on this. In Hebrews eleven, uh, we're told plainly that that Cain didn't offer a better sacrifice. Abel offered a better sacrifice, but what made it better? You know, that's the question I would like to ask. Isn't it interesting as well that even though they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, God was still willing to accept them and help them and bless them and yes. receive them? I think that's really interesting. Yeah, he, he didn't just cast them off and just say, well, I have nothing to do with you anymore. Right. And clearly, like, God's character is still inspired, like, free will devotion. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. obviously, before Cain got angry, both of them had some kind of respect for God, you know? So that's, that's interesting is getting driven out of the garden of Eden didn't embitter them against God and, and think like, well, I mean, if God's going to cast us out of the garden of Eden, you know, forget him. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of interesting. Yes. And, and again, there, there is this sense where they, they, it seems like they want to do the right thing, but Cain, I I really don't think, you know, maybe I'm again, maybe I'm stretching this here. I really don't think that it's the substance of Cain's offering. That's the problem. Now, some people may argue against that and, you know, we can disagree about that to some degree, but, uh, you know, it really seems like the problem with Cain is the problem with so many of us. It's, it's a heart problem. It, it's, mm. it's his, his, his heart wasn't in the right place. And I think the proving of that to me is what happens in verse five, you know, his reaction to that, he was very angry and his countenance fell. I think if Cain had the right heart, if he had the right willingness, I don't think he would have been angry. I think he would have been sad. I think he would have said, oh, no, you know, how could I have done this? You know, how could I have done this wrong thing? Or he would have sought God out and said, what did I do wrong? Instead, it just seems like he just seems to uh, retreat and and be angry and, and just no real hope about it. I think that's that is really interesting that the focus goes there in the text, because obviously there's some kind of communicated preference you know, and there's there's something that they knew to do toward the Lord. And you mentioned like violation of law, and yet that's not where the focus is. And it seems like the focus is the focus is actually on Cain and on his response. Because like Leviticus, God gives us his law for the Israel at the time when it was good for us to see and focus on that. And I mm-hmm. think here, you know, God's focus isn't on what whatever he communicated to them that inspired them to bring these things. It's on Cain's mm-hmm. reaction, you know, and I think that is actually pretty incredible because, you know, looking back on this and you could think like, well, I mean, what's the deal with what's the deal with God respecting Cain and Abel? Like, how come we don't see what's communicated? Well, I think that actually gives great credibility to how it's kind of the same principle, I think, is God willing, being willing to speak to Cain in an understandable way. You know, God gives us the things that teach us very certain lessons. I think it's kind of like how the Gospels, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they say similar things, but they don't say the same things. But it's because there are certain, there's there's a certain way that the authors by inspiration focus oftentimes even on the same events and give different perspectives to teach different important lessons. And that's like this, I think, that God's giving a very certain focus based on how this is written to teach us very important lessons 
that are very specific and very needful. If it was written a different way, we wouldn't be able to catch those particular lessons. So, yeah, I, th- I think you're you're making a good point about how the focus becomes Cain's reaction in his heart, because that's really what God is trying to draw out is Cain's heart in all of this, and I think that's what we're supposed to be learning about. And that leads us into the conversation that God has with with Cain, although it certainly looks like a one-way conversation, uh, but I I don't think God's to blame for that. Um, God takes the initiative to speak to Cain in verse 6. Why are you angry about this? Why is your countenance fallen? Hmm. Um, you know, and, and obviously God's not asking him so that Cain can inform him about what's going on. Uh, I think it's a sense where God knows why he's angry. God knows why his countenance has fallen, but he wants Cain to think about that. Um, so often in our lives, we need to be thinking of, you know, why am I so angry? You know, um, that the idea that if I'm angry about something and I don't have a reason for it, if I'm angry at someone, you know, uh, Jesus basically warned us, you know, angry, anger against your brother without a cause. Right. And so that, that's, that's something that I think that, that we see is that there's no reason ultimately for Cain to be angry. And this is part of what sin does to us, right? Sin, uh, I think what what we can get into, well, I don't want to go too far into that until we get to the application, but um, sin changes our mindset. And that's really what was happening with with Mm. Cain right here. And God is reasoning with him. Listen, if you do well, if you want to to do the right thing, you're going to be accepted. Everything's going to be okay. But if you don't do well, if, if your heart is not such that you want to do the right thing, sin lies at the door. Now, the idea of sin lying at the door uh, really is something that should sound pretty dangerous and pretty, pretty uh, 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 terrifying to us, that, uh, that sin lies at the door. Um, some things that I, I can think of in terms of how temptation and sin work and how we see in the later, you know, in the, in the new Testament about how sin and temptation work, you know, I can be tempted about something, but until I act upon that sin, I can move on from that. I can resist that. I can flee that temptation, but that sin is always there. That sin, that, that possibility of committing that sin is there. And it's almost like God is, telling Cain, look, this is how you deal with your temptation. This is how you get away from it. Um, Your sins, uh, its desire is for you. It wants you. It wants to take you. It wants you you for itself. It wants to rule over you. But God's telling Cain, you should rule over it. You see, you can switch this around, Cain. That's really seems to be what God is is impressing upon him. Yeah, he really makes it sound pretty easy it's like mm-hmm. kind of like the idea of repent like all you've got to do is just do the right thing you know it's not not hard yep. you know the, the difficult thing is changing the heart you know and it's interesting in verse six if cain would have just asked himself those questions that would have been the best thing he could do you know why am i angry why has my countenance fallen you know, it's, and that, isn't that what hebrews chapter 
uh, 4 verse 12 says, you know, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than an two-edged sword, you know, able to pierce and divide. You know, it's it's like if, if he would have asked himself this, he could have divided his own thoughts and intentions and judge his own motives and see how unreasonable it was. But it doesn't seem like Cain asked himself the questions that God was asking him. And that's something I've noticed in, in the scripture is, uh, for instance, in the ministry of, of Jesus with his disciples, uh, Jesus would ask them questions that were meant to get them to reflect on themselves and on their faith, on their hearts. And the worst thing they could do is not ask themselves those same questions. And I think it's the same for us that, you know, God's word is meant to get us to reflect on our own hearts and judge our own intentions and judge our thoughts on the basis of the word and divide those thoughts and separate them and, and bring to judgment, you know, thoughts and intentions that aren't in line with the word. And that purifies the heart. Um, hmm. So it's just interesting that God gives Cain the same access to that same kind of purity of heart that Jesus was giving his own disciples access to. It's pretty interesting. And it is impressive that, you know, God doesn't just reach out and just change Cain's will. Right, right. <laughs> you know, automatically. Um, and, you know, some might argue that Cain's will was was wrong from the start and that God intended it that whole time. Well, if that's the case, why does he even spend this time talking to Cain? Mm. Why do you spend this time reasoning with him? See, that's the thing. Like, God doesn't manipulate us. God doesn't manipulate Cain into doing the right thing. He appeals to him. He appeals to him according to reason and according to logic. And uh, and of course, as you as you've we've already established, uh, it doesn't seem that this is at least immediately successful. Mm-hmm. Um, it says in verse eight that Cain talked to him, and then he killed him. And, and there's a number of narratives that we could make up to paint this scene, right? This could have gone in multiple ways. Uh, and it's interesting, again, that the, the text doesn't tell us exactly how this happened. It just tells us that it happened. Mm. And, it, it, and, and it lays that blame at Cain's feet. Uh, maybe Cain was trying to come on to Abel kind of smooth and say, Hey, you know, I, I, I appreciate you and everything. And why don't we head out to the field and we'll just act like nothing happened. And then he stinks up from behind him. You know, I don't, or it could have been that Cain just went very angrily and very intensely at him from the start. You know, I, there's any number of ways that, that Cain could have approached Abel, but whatever it was and however it happened, and I think something else too, that may be a possibility. Again, getting into speculation here. <laughs> uh, Abel could have reacted to Cain in a way that that didn't really uh, didn't really help good things happen in Cain's heart. You know, could have been that Abel was uh, a, too goody goody or something. You know, I, I don't know. I, too goody goody. That's a stupid way to phrase that, but. Um, it could have been, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Sometimes people who are doing the right thing can have sometimes the wrong attitude about doing that right thing. But again, this is all speculation. There's nothing, there's nothing factual about that. Regardless of what happened, Cain talked to his brother and then he killed him. And this is what's called, you know, the first murder in the Bible. Um, it's the first recorded in the text that we have of one person killing another. Um, and, and it's a sad situation, right? 
things could have been better. Things could have been so much better. But yet Cain chooses this path that is going to bring about vast, vast consequences for him and vast consequences for all of humanity. Isn't it interesting that God actually puts himself in a position where he looks like the stumbling block and the reason for all of this? Like, you know, if God would have just respected Cain's offering, because it doesn't show why he didn't respect it, right? It actually kind of makes God look unreasonable. You know, like, why respect Abel and not Cain? Well, and then because he didn't respect Cain's offering, he got angry. And then because God confronted him about that further, well, that probably pushed him even further in the wrong direction. And it's like, it seems like, you know, really God's choice, God's talking with Cain really pushed him to become more evil. But I think that's it. You know, when we're confronted, when we're confronted by God for our wickedness, no matter how we're confronted, it's going to push us in a direction and I think about Jesus with the Pharisees, you know, like they probably, if Jesus never lived in the time of those Pharisees that Jesus lived with and talked to, they probably could have lived their whole lives appearing very righteous and very good. But because of the fact that Jesus confronted them about their hearts, they very quickly were exposed to be murderers. And they, within a matter of years, you know, just had a fiery desire to torture Jesus to death and just Mm. revile him and just say all sorts of things against him and treat him in the most humiliating way. And they, they wanted that badly. And I think again, in a sense, Jesus was a stumbling block, right? Because he, if Jesus would not have lived, think about Judas, if Jesus would not have lived, would Judas have died the same way? If Jesus would not have confronted Judas in the ways that he did, would Judas have killed himself? Um, but I think, again, it gets back to, you know, when God exposes and confronts us for our hearts and of our wickedness, it does push us pretty aggressively, uh, which is a really risky thing. I think Jesus said in Luke six forty five, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. There is absolutely the instance that how we react to God's truth uh, tells very much about where our heart is. And so it ultimately seems to be the case with Cain. Let's talk about this consequence. Um, You know, again, God asked him, where's Abel? And again, doesn't God know? (laughs) And it's... You, you see that rebellious kind of attitude with Cain, too. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He's not up to me. And God, again, calling out to him and saying, what have you done? You know, he's wanting him to deal with the fact that he has done this. The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You've done this. You're cursed from the earth. And when you till the ground, it's not going to yield its strength to you. You're going to be a fugitive. You're going to be a vagabond. You're going to be exiled upon the earth. Pretty serious things. I mean, I, I might even say, I, I, would, I would absolutely say, the consequences for Cain's sin, at least for him, are far more uh, uh, terrible, at least immediate in immediate consequences, uh, than the consequences against his parents. Mm. Um because at least his parents are still able to live and be and 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 they're not going to have this curse upon them where 
uh, men will be looking to kill kill him. And I, I wonder too about that as the idea of Cain being concerned about others who find him will kill him. Does this mean that we have an overall morality about most of humanity at that time? Uh, does this mean that most of humanity at that time is going to be God-fearing and understand who God is to some degree? Uh, that may be a possibility. Um, what What is it ultimately that makes Cain respond in this way? It's it's just kind of interesting, like you were saying, when you compare it to Adam and Eve's sin, you know, I think it's another consequence of God's mercy and, you know, revealing uh, Cain's heart. Because again, you look at this in a retrospective kind of way, you look back on it, think about the destruction of Jerusalem and the things that are said about what happened in that city in Lamentations uh, because of the sins of the people. Um, think about Jesus on the cross. Uh, Jesus, when he died on the cross, that was the manifestation of what our sin really looks like and what we deserve when we sin. And the problem is when God withholds the wrath of sin and what's due, anything he does against it seems unreasonable because of the corruption of our heart. And you see that too, right? That eternity in hell, you know, that seems so unreasonable. How can a good God send someone to hell forever? Well, we won't get into it right now, but actually it's actually only fair and only reasonable that somebody spend an eternity in hell for stealing from God, not just their own eternal life, but the life of others eternally because of their own evil influence. So in sin, things are stolen from God. That sin makes us forget how precious they are to God. And I just think it's it's very interesting that, uh, you know, because of Cain's sin and how unrepentant he is, because you don't see him ever repent, that because of his heart, you know, God's justice looks unfair and unreasonable. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Cain deserves what Jesus got on the cross. And what he receives is actually, even from the very beginning of what he receives, very reasonable and very merciful. You know, he still gets to live. He still gets to live on the earth. He still gets more time to reflect on his ways. He can still have a family. He can still have children, which he does. You know, there's just so much freedom and liberty that Cain has. But sin doesn't focus on the mercy. Sin focuses on the punishment and just blows it up out of proportion, you know. Yeah, whereas whereas someone who loves God is going to focus on the grace and appreciate that grace. Right. And he's got a lot of grace in this punishment, as you've already established there, that, you know, and, and God is like that, isn't he? Um, I think the only thing that we can see that would be without that grace would be an eternity in hell. But the reason for that is that this is hell is an existence that is separate completely from God. God's not there. And so if God's not there, his love isn't there. His grace isn't there. And there is no grace without God. Right. There is no love without God. And so uh, appreciate uh, that that kind of breaking down of what's going on here because uh, I think even even sinners can look at Cain and say, oh, poor Cain. Cain was uh, yeah, dumped upon just because he didn't do the right thing initially. No, Cain, his wickedness, this was not just the start of his wickedness. It had been going on for some time. It had increased. And God dealt with him. God said, hey, this can be better. 
It doesn't have to be this way. Right. And actually, uh, there's a place in the scripture where you see the opposite perspective, the good perspective. Ezra chapter 9, verse 13. I'll just read a part of this verse. So this is somebody who was a part of the nation of Judah when they had been uh, punished for their sins. And I'm sorry, he was from Levi. But he returned back to Jerusalem after they had been completely punished by Babylon. And here's what he says in a prayer. He says that after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. And what Ezra saw and what they got for their sins was the greatest wrath that God had poured out on any people or any nation in the whole history of the world up to that point. It was worse than the flood because the flood was instantaneous, it seems, and the destruction of Jerusalem was not only not instantaneous, it involved some of the greatest madness and depravity that the human mind and heart can fall into. And he still says, you, God, have punished us less than our sins deserve. So what's the difference? Ezra in chapter Mm -hmm. 9 was repenting, accepting, and confessing his sins to God. And and you can put that into perspective with Cain, and you can see, you know, I, I think you do a great job of pointing that out and saying, look at Ezra's reaction to this. Um, he's appreciating the goodness that God is still allowing them to have. Um, so yeah, and that's really that's the re- that's reality. Um, we need to be appreciating every good thing that God gives us, uh, even in spite of. And, and recognize what we truly have, what we truly have done. But unfortunately, Cain's wickedness and Cain's problems don't stop with him. It really seems like his family continues on uh, this path. Uh, at the very least, he's got his own family that's being uh, being born and going going on. Um, We've talked about a few of these people that seem to invent certain things, craftsmen and bronze and iron, tent makers, uh, father of those who play the harp and flute. Um, uh, you know, some of these people actually, uh, if you look into um, some secular scholars as well as uh, some, some people who get into maybe a little bit more esoteric stuff, will quote and try to say, well, these people were very special people and make up these whole legends about them, uh, which is kind of interesting. Tubal Cain is one that I think uh, pops up in a number of different places. Um, and if, if, if it's the case, you know, obviously the Bible shows us these are, were real people. And if they were real people, then they may have tried really hard to make a name for themselves. Uh, again, we're going to see that more and more over the course of the scriptures. But specifically, we've got these words of Lamech. And it's interesting here that Lamech is, is almost like he, he personifies this increase of sinful attitude that was founded in Cain. What did Cain do? He killed someone. Now, I don't know. There are some movies and some TV shows that try to portray murder as if, you know, in someone's if someone's crazy and enjoys that activity it becomes like a drug to them that's at least the way that i've seen it portrayed before in movies and television shows i don't know how realistic that is um but i kind of have to wonder uh because lamech is saying 
I've killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. And, and it's almost like this sort of gangster mentality that says, listen, you touch me, I'm going to kill you, you know, or you, you do something that's very small to me. I'm going to visit those things upon you multiple times. And I think we, we see that attitude throughout the world right now, right? I mean, we see that attitude of like, oh, man, you hurt me and my family. We're done. Or, uh, you know, even among friends sometimes, you know, you hurt them for something. Well, they're just going to cast off that friendship. You're nothing to me now. You're, you're nobody. And, 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 of course, that is not an attitude that's full of love and grace. That's, that's beyond that. And, uh, you know, I, I bring up the idea of what people might call a fallacy of the slippery slope where you just begin to go down a little bit and you're going to end up going down the whole hill. And uh, it, it, it's just interesting to see that, that really at this point, it seems like this whole situation is such a mess and God has allowed this situation to come about, right? He didn't kill Cain. And in fact, he gives Cain, we didn't really deal with this, but he gives Cain this mark. Now, I don't know what that mark was. Again, we get into endless speculation with that, but whatever it is, the text tells us that it helped Cain not to be murdered by others. And I don't know what that means. But the fact that Cain was not murdered, the fact that Cain was not killed, allowed this family to be propagated here. And so, again, from the standpoint of the world, God probably looks kind of silly. You know, you're allowing these things to go on. You really don't have any power. But again, when we get back to the idea of later on, Adam knew his wife again, bore a son and named him Seth. And again, that, that meaning of that name appointed. And the, it's, it's said about Seth, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel whom came killed. And so Seth is the replacement for Abel. A son was born to him called Enosh. And it's at this point that the text tells, that tells us that men began to call on the name of the Lord. The idea that there would be men who would seek out God's counsel, who would seek God in every part of their lives, who would seek to be faithful and humble, who would seek to be guided by him. All these things are really, really important as we see that as compared and contrasted with the line of Cain. These two family lines would be against each other uh, up until the time of the flood when Cain's line is going to be completely obliterated, and then we see the line of Seth continue from there. Yeah, so Lamech, you know, thinking about his speech, one thing that strikes me is how his speech would affect his wives, because, you know, he was talking to his wives, and, you know, Genesis 2, 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3, um, verse 16 mentions that, um... You know, the wife's, the woman's desire would be for a husband, you shall rule over you. And you definitely see what's uncharacteristic of a husband and wife relationship, you know, because I think about this guy just really seems intimidating and just seems like he's ready to blow up and be violent quickly. And I imagine that would probably be pretty scary for his wives because he said, like, I killed a young person for hurting me. So, okay, so if his wives do anything that he dislikes, I mean, shouldn't that be, like, absolutely terrifying? I mean, that seems very controlling, very terrifying. 
And I think... Listen, you burn the toast. Yeah, right. You know, and I think <laughs> we can gather that Lamech is pretty much on the opposite end of the spectrum of God's character, right? You know, so mm-hmm. if Lamech is intimidating and uh, angry, well, then what's the right way to treat a wife? It's to be understanding and kind and compassionate, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of interesting and... Um, you know, just how uncharacteristic this is, this is of God, you know, because Cain obviously hurt God and hurt Abel, and yet Cain didn't, I mean, God did not destroy Cain quickly, or even at all, yet Lamech, you know, even a young person hurts him, it's like, well, you're dead, you know, it's just amazing how different Lamech is from God himself, even in this very chapter, you know, how quickly man is just so opposite of God, so you want to learn about God, you're mm. not going to learn about it from Lamech. You know, and you think like yeah. God, you know, God allowed Lamech to live. But yeah, I just think that's interesting of just how different in this chapter Lamech reacts to someone hurting him and how God reacts to someone hurting him. Just kind of interesting. Yeah. And that is the, again, that is the world's reaction. Someone hurt me. I'm going to hurt them back. Right. I'm going to make them suffer for what they've made me suffer. And that is not the love of God. That's not what God wants us to have, or the attitude that God wants us to have at all. Yeah, and Lamech doesn't seem approachable at all either, you know, and when you look at God in chapter 4, you know, God's very approachable, and, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty amazing. It's like, when I read the Bible, is it really that God's not approachable? You know, even when God does bring judgment, God never, never acts or does anything in a way that makes him look approachable the blame is always on man's sin and the violence of man man's who's not approachable god is approachable and god wants Mm -hmm. to be approached you know god wanted to be approached by cain in the right way and i think that's a very important thing is how come god doesn't look approachable sometimes it's because of man's wickedness and violence that's why Let's go ahead and move into the final section of the show. Uh, this is where we want to make some application about what we've talked about. Um, I think maybe the most obvious thing from this chapter is don't kill people. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, this is interesting too because here is something that's established in Scripture that is put forward very plainly that the murder of another human being is going to bring about disastrous consequences for you. It's going to be terrible. Okay. Then further in the law of Moses, we see it instituted. Basically you, you kill someone else, then this is what is going to come about. Jesus further, um, you know, raises the bar for that, that don't just, it's not just about not killing. It's don't even be angry with your brother without a cause. That's the core issue, right? That's the heart issue. In fact, 1 John 3.15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so God says don't kill. Do not murder. And what does that say about our world today? We have murder everywhere. We have death everywhere. 
And, you know, we can get wrapped up into that and say, oh, how terrible the world is. But how about you? What are you doing? Are you getting angry with people for no reason? Are you uh, having a positive benefit on others? Are you ab- allowing relationships to be obliterated just because you you have some imagined slight? Or maybe someone really did hurt you and you're trying to hurt them back. What What solution is that going to be? What good is that going to bring about? Don't kill. Don't murder people. Um, you know, the other thing we have to recognize is that every sin has a story. Again, my reaction to God is going to tell a lot about my heart. And whatever action I take, there's a background leading up to that action. And what God is imploring for us to do is to look back at the initial core reasons for that action and go back to that. You know, Cain could have just turned around and said, you know what, God, I recognize I didn't do the right thing. Uh, let me go back. You know, even if we accept the idea that Cain was ignorant about this and didn't know the right thing to do, God's right there. As you said, Bryant, he's he's approachable. And so Cain could have asked God, you know, if he didn't know. I think he did know. I think he knew what the right way was to go because he never showed any interest in asking God, well, what is the right way? I think he knew. And yet he he didn't do that. He didn't uh, he didn't follow that. He wasn't obedient to the Lord because of the the rottenness in his own heart, the 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 darkness in his own heart. You might say. The other thing, obviously, is rule over your sin. Rule over your sin. God wants to empower us, not to become wealthy, not to become powerful over others, not to reach out and become this great person that everybody looks up to. But God empowers us to reign over our lives, to have control. I think most of the reason that people sin or get wrapped up in the wrong things, and this includes me as well, is because we feel like we don't have control in our lives. And to try to establish that feeling of control, we will flail around trying different things. And if we're not seeking from God where we need to be controlling, guess what? We're going to try to control other people. We're going to try to control, uh, you know, what other people are doing, what people are thinking. If I don't, if I'm not thinking about God, if I don't have him as my sole, uh, sole purpose and the center of my attitude, I'm going to seek to control, uh, you know, certain things about my life that maybe in controlling that, I'm actually not really controlling it, that I'm giving myself to it. See, that's the, the, again, that deceitfulness of Satan rearing its head that where Satan is saying, listen, (laughs) you have control, Eve, over whether you can partake of this fruit or not. No, the the real, the reality is that Eve had control over her actions and could have, held back and said, no, God told me not to do this. And then again, in terms of ruling over our sin, Cain could have said, you know, I really want to do something about this. I really, I'm really, really angry, but you know what? I need to take, take a step back and think about why am I so angry? And is there any reason for me to be this angry? And you know, the scriptures don't tell us that anger is a sin. 
uh, anger is something that can be used to channel good things if we're if we're properly informed about it if we're angry about things that god is angry at guess what we're on his team we're with him but you know what god is angry about god god gets angry about sin god gets angry about bad attitudes but not just angry uh that sin grieves him as well and so the control the reality that we have is we have the ability to control our sin there's no place where we can say in our lives like i I just couldn't help it the temptation was there so i just had to follow up on i had to embrace that that's not true that's not true when we do that we are giving up our control we're giving up our control uh, not to something that's going to be good for us that's going to protect us we're giving up our control to something that's not even there that something that is ultimately ourselves trying to rule over ourselves without god and yet god wants to empower us god wants us to know that we can control our lives that that listening to him and following him in that way empowers us makes us more like him and gives us more of his mind yeah on that on that note you know with rule over sin yeah, it's something in chapter four we learn about God's nature and image. You know, God Himself rules over sin in that way. You know, God has the opportunity and could hate and could murder in ways that Cain did. Um, he has every reason to become embittered, um, but God chooses with His freedom and power to control that freedom and power for the sake of honoring others and for the benefit of others. And just a hard consequence of the fact that God created us in his image, a part of that in God's mind was knowing that that was going to come with the risk of freedom to accomplish very evil things against other people because God does have that freedom himself. But God's not a robot. You know, he just doesn't, he doesn't make himself a servant because of some program that he has in his own mind. He willfully controls his strongest passions so that instead he can show grace, kindness, and mercy. Um, And so I think another application kind of with that is we can't let God's grace diminish in our eyes the reality of sin and its depravity. That is such a risky thing with the world we live in and what God has designed. Um, I can, God gives me the freedom to ignore sin. He gives me the freedom to be like Cain and ignore God's punishment and just live my life. But what I'm ignoring is just the reality of what sin really is and the reality of the wrath it deserves. And so we really need to make sure that we're honest about sin, willing to confess, willing to accept it, and strive to do well. Um, Because God is approachable. God is willing to help us. He's willing to strengthen us. I mean, you think about David and Bathsheba. When David confessed and acknowledged that sin, God helped him and he strengthened his kingdom, but he needed to accept his guilt. Um, So we just, we really need to look at sin with a clear perspective and we need to see it the way God sees it and accept that and control our passions. Um, I think with that too is accepting God's choices. So we need to accept God's choices in worship. We need to accept God's choice of the kind of heart and mind we need to be striving to have toward people. We need to accept the goodness of God's choices, and that pertains to both doctrine and the church 
It pertains to my conduct, my behavior, that when God says something is holy, then I accept that. And I accept when he says something is unholy or when something is evil, that no matter what he says, because he is God and because of his character, I will accept the choices he has made. And that my responsibility is to say, yes, Lord, and humble myself and submit. Um, And I guess one last thing is, you know, if, if we're not supposed to murder, then by the principle of antithesis, then we're supposed to be striving to cultivate and preserve life instead of destroying it. And so what cultivates and preserves and honors life? Well, it's kindness, it's patience, it's gentleness, it's treating people with honor and respect, even when they don't deserve it. It's looking at people in a way that's honorable, even in my own heart. And I think that's even gets into praying for people that, you know, an application is in this is God had wishes for Cain. He desired for Cain to receive certain things. And, you know, I think it's not just the action of kindness, but it's a heart that is continuously praying for people to receive good things from God and especially salvation. So I think an application of cultivating and preserving and seeking life ultimately is salvation. We need to be seeking salvation not just in action, but in prayer for people around us, even people like Cain who are wicked and don't deserve it because we ourselves don't deserve salvation. Um, so then you could you could take the application that far with if we're not supposed to destroy life, then we need to also as well seek life. What do you think? Again, we appreciate you listening today and hope that our time together has been spent well. Uh, We encourage you again to reach out to us, walking through the book at protonmail.com, P-R-O-T-O-N mail.com. We're thankful so much for Bryant. Bryant, thanks for being uh, with me today. And uh, hopefully next time we'll be able to open up the book again and walk through it together as we study together. Uh, Bryant, do you have any closing thoughts? No, just very, very encouraging, very edifying Uh, time spent very, very well. Just thank you very, very much for making the time to do this with with me and allowing me to do it with you. Very good. Well, thank you. Thank you, brother. Well, I hope you will uh, be with us next time, but until then, study well and be lights to his glory. The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.